This is the word of God for us today, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Pray with me, friends. Now, God, I plead with you to add your blessing to the reading, teaching, and study of your word. God, do a work in us that only you can do. And for those who are part of our church who can't be with us, do your work in their lives too. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. All right. How many of you are history buffs? A couple of you like some history. Good, good, good. Y'all know that there are some pieces of history that everybody knows about and some pieces of history that only get mentioned in the corners, right? For example, just don't do a show of hands. I can't see your hands. How many of you know about the naval battle at Salamis in 480 BC. Okay, (laughs) got some clear no's on that one. But you know what's wild about that, friends? That battle between the Persian Navy and the far superior Greek, the far inferior Greek force, where the Greeks beat the far superior Persian Navy absolutely changed the course of Western history. Yet very, very few of us know about it. A few more of you know, like at the battle at Thermopylae, because we had a movie about it. But Salamis is still one of those weird footnotes in history. However, there are some events that, man, they are everywhere in history. Today, if anybody uses the phrase 9-11... You know what they're talking about, don't you? And it's not a Porsche. Most Americans, they hear those numbers and they think about a particular moment in American history, 2001, terrorists attacked our country. Some things everybody knows and get repeated over and over and over. Some things are a little more obscure. Today, we've got one of those that all four gospel writers said, everybody needs to know This one. When we read through the four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, some events are present in only one of the four gospels. John is the only one that gives us the woman at the well in Samaria. But other events, like the feeding of the 5,000, make their way into all of them. Today, we've got an event that makes its way into all the gospels. We find a moment that is so significant that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John want to tell us about it, even though 
All the other three guys did too. Oftentimes, John will look at an event that Matthew, Mark, and Luke told and said, I don't need to tell that story again. Not today. Today, we watch the moment when Jesus rode into Jerusalem in such a way as to show the world he is God's promised king. But he did it in such a way to show us that God's promised king is not exactly what the crowd expected. So as we watch the powerful scene unfold today, I want you to be ready to find three points that are going to help us to see and celebrate Jesus as our king. And by the way, how weirdly timely is this? I didn't plan this one, but apparently there was some kingy thing going on in some other country. I don't know nothing about it because I'm American. But God bless those who liked it. Point number one, worship Jesus as king. Point number one, worship Jesus as king. Look at verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So we're picking up our look at the life of Jesus. This is a Sunday, most likely. Perhaps, if you follow my timeline, I think... I think I can argue for this. This might be April 2nd of AD 30. It could be at the end of March AD 33, depending on exactly the year of the crucifixion. I have reasons for my thoughts. You can have your own and we'll all be happy together. But we know this. It's Palm Sunday. It's the week of the Passover celebration. Massive crowds have swelled the population of Jerusalem Think about this, by the way, guys. In John chapters 1 to 11, we got a, about three years of the life and the ministry of Jesus. John chapters 12 to 20 give us a single week. It's the week leading up to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. All these events happen with the Passover in the background. A, a festival that brings to mind how God delivered Israel from Egypt is stirring the hearts of these Jewish people toward the promises of God and toward a hunger that God would again deliver their nation. Now Jesus, I'm sure you remember, was lodging in Bethany. It's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. He'd been there the night before having a dinner party with Lazarus and his sisters, Martha and Mary and it was in the home of Simon. And now it's Sunday and Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. And he knows full well that his arrival is going to cause a stir. And it's going to move his opponents to action. And that action is going to lead to Jesus' death. Never for a single moment let yourself think that Jesus was not aware of or completely in control of the timing of all of these events. Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem at just the right time to accomplish his mission at the exact moment that he and his heavenly father planned from eternity past. So as Jesus travels to Jerusalem, we got two crowds. 
One group, not really mentioned much here, is with Jesus, going with him from Bethany to Jerusalem. That's like Jesus, the disciples, the people in the village who were excited about him and Lazarus. But the other group is a group of people who were inside Jerusalem who got word of Jesus' arrival and then came out to the city gates to welcome him and to welcome in his little entourage. Now, before we watch what the crowd does, though, I want to talk to you about a little cultural thing in Jesus' day. It's not super familiar to us, but it really sheds light on what's going to happen. And the Greek word for what happens in that culture is a word that we would pronounce parousia. You guys ever hear that word before? Parousia? It's a word that means coming or arrival. And it carries a rather formal meaning in Jesus' day. See, back in ancient times, when a king came to a city, the arrival of the king was a formal event. And as the king drew near the city, he would send on ahead of him to the city a herald, a messenger. If it was really time for him to arrive, that herald might blow a trumpet to make the people of the city aware that the royal party is approaching. And at the sounding of the trumpet, the people of the city would open the gates and they would walk out of the city and they would formally welcome the king to their town. They would exchange formal greetings and then the entire group would return to the city accompanying their royal guests. As a side note, the word parousia is often used to refer to Jesus' second coming. Can you see why? When Jesus comes back to the earth, what's going to happen? The Savior will come. First, there will be the sound of a trumpet. And everyone who is in Christ, whether they've died before, whether they're alive on that day, they will be caught up into the air to meet the Lord like the people outside the city gates. Then we return with the Lord to earth in perfect victory. Well, here in John 12, word has gone ahead of Jesus. The word is announcing to the people of Jerusalem that the Savior is approaching. And once the people in the city for Passover hear that Jesus is coming, they, as in a formal parousia, walk out of the gates of the city to welcome Jesus the way somebody would welcome a king. The Bible says they're carrying palm branches. I thought about having Russ bring a bunch of palm branches in, but that would have been weird. Why were they carrying palm branches? In the period of time between the Old Testament and the New, the waving of palm branches became a cultural way of celebration. When, when a man named Judas Maccabeus led the Jews to overthrow the Syrians back in the second century BC, the people of Jerusalem waved palm branches toward him to honor him, to celebrate the victory. In the book of Revelation, John sees people in heaven waving palm branches as an act of praise and celebration. Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10 says, After this I looked, and behold, 
a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the crowd that that came out of the city of Jerusalem, they waved branches toward Jesus. They treated him like he's a victorious king formally approaching his royal city. And they joyfully greeted him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, I don't know if you noticed it this morning when Russ read for us, but the crowd here is citing Psalm 118. It's one of the most joyful, hopeful psalms, and it promises the coming of the Messiah, the the Christ, the promised King. I want to read to you again Psalm 118, 22 to 26. Listen to this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So the crowd referencing Psalm 118 is the crowd recognizing that day as the day the Lord has made, the day when the rejected stone should become the cornerstone. And that cry, save us, we pray, O Lord. You know what word that is in the New Testament? It's Hosanna. Because the word Hosanna literally means save us. It means deliver us now. It means come on and do it. The cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's an expression of confident hope that Jesus is in fact the promised king. He's the one who will deliver Israel as God has promised. And then if there's any doubt who they mean, the crowd simply calls Jesus even the king of Israel. It's funny, back in John 6, 15, a couple years ago, there was a crowd that wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. You know what Jesus did? He slipped away from them. He hid himself from them. He would not let them make him king. But here, Jesus very intentionally approaches Jerusalem as God's promised king. I would argue that this is at the very moment, on the very day when God prophesied the Messiah would come. And Jesus does not in any way force the crowd to be silent. They worship Jesus as God's promised king. And in that, they're right. Our first application point for today is that you and I should worship Jesus as king. Whatever else is going on here, wherever the crowds may be right here and some places where the crowds may be missing the point, they're correct about the fact that Jesus is God's promised king. 
if we're going to get Jesus right, if you're going to get Jesus right, we must grasp that Jesus is God's promised king, our king. Might I suggest to us today that seeing Jesus as our king, believing in him for real, leads to celebration and it leads to submission. Would you guys agree that that's probably true? If you really see Jesus as king, it should lead you to a celebration and to submission. See, the crowds here are celebrating. They are overjoyed. They know that Jesus is their only hope. You and I should have that same joy multiplied by infinity. The crowd was thinking of Jesus as a king over national Israel and their hope for deliverance from Rome. We see Jesus as the king over the whole universe and our hope for deliverance from hell. And it would be worth your while just to take time and consider what is so much better for us because Jesus is the king. Because Jesus is king, you know that the world will not win. Because Jesus is the king, you know that nobody has the authority to tell you that you may not approach God. Because Jesus is king, you know that your king loves you and knows what it's like to hurt like you hurt and is powerful enough to conquer the universe and overthrow all evil with one word from his holy lips. Because Jesus is king, you can know that your king knows how you function best because your king is also your creator. Because Jesus is king, you can know that your king truly cares because your king laid down his life to bring you into his kingdom. Rejoice, the Lord is king. Again, I'll just point out, Yesterday, a lot of people watched on TV and got all tearful, frilly, happy about a man who can't do any of this stuff being called the king of a small nation. How glorious is it that we know the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Having Jesus as king also, though, calls you to submission. Y'all know what king means? King means king. King means authority. King means lordship. You cannot pretend that Jesus is your king and then suggest that he does not have the right to command. When it comes to having a king, you've got three choices, friends. You can make yourself the king over your own life. That will destroy you. You can bow to a king who is infinitely lesser than Jesus, somebody else other than you. You could bow to false religion, secularism, physical pleasure, the applause of the world. But those kings are not true kings. And those kings will always leave you empty and lost. Or you can bow to Jesus as the king. If you say to yourself, I will choose no king. If you say that, you're choosing yourself as the king. And that will put you in direct opposition to the God who made you. So dear friends, 
Our only logical choice is that we bow to Jesus as our king. I want to make one last observation before we move on. When I talk to you about bowing to Jesus as your king, I want you not to get the wrong impression. See, some people think that they're going to get in good with God, get in better with the king, the better they serve him. You ever known anybody like that? Sometimes people let themselves think that they must serve Jesus to a particular degree so that he will accept them as his subjects. But friends, that's backward. Here's the good news. Here is the gospel. The gospel is not a claim that you get to belong to Jesus if you serve him well enough. Because you can't do it. The good news is that Jesus will make you his by his grace. And you receive his grace through faith in him alone. So the reason you serve Jesus as your king is because it's good. You serve Jesus to receive the joy for which you were made. You serve Jesus because you're grateful for grace. You serve him because he's already changed you from the inside out. Do you you guys feel the difference in the things? So many people sit in so many churches this day and they think that their standing before God is based on whether they're good enough. Can I give you the joyful news that you're never good enough, but Jesus is good enough, and Jesus gives you his good enough as a gift. Rejoice, the Lord is king. Thinking about Jesus as a king is good, but as we move forward, let's be sure that our picture of Jesus as king is big enough. So point number two, believe Jesus fulfills God's promise. Believe Jesus fulfills God's promise. Look at 14 to 16. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. You know, it's funny, in the other gospels, the authors take a lot of time spelling out for us the, the weird little circumstances of Jesus. He sends his disciples to a village to acquire the donkey and they bring it back and they put their coats on it and Jesus gets up on the donkey to ride it. All John's like, look, he found a donkey, he rode it because that's the part that matters. But you know what? Whether we take John's short version or Matthew's long version, Jesus chose to do this on purpose. He could have asked for other things, right? Get me a cart, get me a horse, get me an ox. He had them bring him this donkey. And there's not a single thing accidental in this pageantry. I want you to picture the scene. The crowd around Jesus is proclaiming, He's the king! And they're pleading with him, Oh, king! Deliver us now. They're waving their palm branches in celebration and they're hoping for victory. 
And Jesus selects a donkey, a, a small animal, and he rides on it toward the city. And right away here, Jesus is doing what the crowd expects, and he's doing what they don't expect. The patriotic crowd is begging for Jesus to be the conquering hero. And you can't blame them, right? What an army Jesus could raise. He could easily lead the Jews to freedom from the Roman Empire. I mean, let's just be logical for a second from the perspective of the people in Jerusalem about how easy the victory would be with Jesus as the mighty king leading the army into battle. Jesus can heal. So the wounded are really not a problem in this fight. That's good for your army, right? Jesus can feed an army with one lunch. Supplies are not an issue. Jesus can raise the dead. So mortality is not a problem if we can get to the healing people quick enough. Jesus can calm stormy, stormy seas. He can walk on the water. Geography is not an issue. With that kind of king leading your army, victory is sure, wouldn't you say? Yes. Now, the actions Jesus takes declare him the promised king from God. He chooses to ride the exact animal that fulfills a prophecy of the arrival of God's promised king. Jesus, knowing full well this crowd is looking for a king to enter the city, he behaves just like a king. He doesn't try to quiet the crowd down. He doesn't try to hide and slip off into obscurity. Jesus is clear, yes, Jerusalem, I am the coming king. The problem is, Jesus is not coming to be the kind of king the people are craving. At least not yet. The Savior shows us this in his actions as he moves toward Jerusalem. He chooses to ride like a king would do. king would ride into the city. But rather than being on a powerful war horse, Jesus sits himself on the back of a donkey's colt. A tiny animal that would have barely I mean, gotten his feet off the ground. He did not ride in as a man ready to raise an army. He rode into Jerusalem in meekness and gentleness and humility. I so desperately want to say, I don't know if this really works or not, but it's almost like the difference in choosing to ride a Harley or a Vespa. (laughs) You know, one looks like the the tough guy and one doesn't, right? Now, I'm going to guess that there are two citations of Old Testament passages here. One of them is in Zechariah chapter 9, and I want to give that to you now with a couple scriptures around it. Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 11, listen to this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So the passage that John and this crowd cites, it's a passage that promises the arrival of Messiah, God's chosen king. 
Jesus very intentionally fulfills the prediction by riding on a donkey. And the context of that passage shows us that the one who rides the donkey into Jerusalem is going to put an end to war, make peace, and rule the world. But the passage shows that the one riding in is going to be humble and gentle as he brings salvation. John's citation also may be blending in a second verse, I think maybe Isaiah 40. Not at all uncommon, by the way, for a New Testament writer to say, to sort of squish a couple of Old Testament verses together into one. The Zechariah passage begins with a statement that says, Rejoice, daughter of Zion. But John calls the people to fear not. You see that there? Maybe John is blending a little Isaiah 40 in. In Isaiah 40, verse 9, here, listen to this. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. If you let those passages be put together, You've got a prophecy of God's promised king coming. He's going to be God with his people. He's going to rule the world. But the humility of riding that donkey indicates that the kingdom is coming in a way that the people are not expecting. They want a powerful military conqueror. Jesus is coming as a, G, as, as, as a, as a gentle, meek, self-sacrificial savior. John says in verse 16, when all this stuff was happening, the disciples didn't understand it. Like the crowd. I mean, the disciples are just caught up in the moment. Man, I got my branch to wave. I got, look, he's riding and the crowds are celebrating. And this is a good day. They're shouting, the celebration, there's hope. They didn't think a lot about the fact that Jesus just very intentionally chose to ride a donkey in order to fulfill a prophecy They didn't think about Zechariah 9.9 being fulfilled. They just knew Jesus, the one they believed to be the rightful king, was entering Jerusalem like a king ought to enter. Hailed by the crowd, escorted into the city, just like in a formal parousia. But where the disciples didn't understand things at first, we need to understand them today. Jesus is king Jesus is not the king that the people expected. Jesus is not the king maybe that the people even wanted. But Jesus is very much the king God promised. In the beginning, when God put Adam in the garden, God treated Adam as a king. God gave Adam dominion over the earth. Adam was to be the king over humanity Obeying God, having kids, tending the garden, filling the earth, subduing it, ruling it under the authority of God, the creator. But you guys know, was Adam a good king? Did Adam follow the commands of his king? No. Adam rejected his role as king. 
He rebelled against God. And as the representative king over humanity, everybody under his rule is counted as in rebellion against God. You guys understand, don't you, that sometimes your national leader makes decisions that bind you to them, whether you like them or not. If you don't, you haven't watched the news in several years. Have you guys ever had your national leader agree to something that maybe you wouldn't personally go for? Ding, ding, ding. The only difference is you would have rebelled just as hard as Adam, if not harder. Well, all humanity under Adam's kingship is under condemnation because Adam is a rebel. Their king rebelled. But God promised one day he would send somebody else into the world and the one to come would be born of woman and would crush the devil and would suffer in the process but would be ultimately perfectly victorious. And every bit of the Old Testament is telling us the story of God promising a king to come, making the promise, repeating the promise, repeating the promise and moving heaven and earth to fulfill his promise of a new king, of a replacement king, of a better king. And it is certainly true. In the Old Testament, God promises that his coming king is going to rule over the entire world, all the nations of the world forever. And if that was the only thing ever said about the coming king, you might say, okay, this crowd has to have it right. They expect Jesus to come in, raise an army, defeat Rome, rule the world. Isaiah and Zechariah show us the king coming, going to rule. He's going to be a king. He's going to rule rightly where Adam failed. And anybody who's willing to switch allegiance from being under Adam to being under the new king will be represented by the new king and will be under the favor of God. All submitted to Jesus as Lord will be under the favor of God represented by the perfection of God's promised king. But the picture of a conquering king is not the only picture God promised. The Old Testament talks also about the promised one as a suffering king servant who lays down his life for the good of God's people. What the crowd, what even the disciples missed is that before Jesus comes to conquer the world, he comes to lay down his life like a sacrificial lamb that he might justly bring about the forgiveness of all who come to him in faith. We want to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. This means first that Jesus is the one who came to give up his life to save us for our sins. Jesus riding that little donkey into Jerusalem shows us he's coming not to fight a physical battle, but to humbly yield up his life to atone for our wrong. In Isaiah 53, speaking of him, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him is the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, once Jesus died and rose from the grave, he ascended to heaven, alive. He never died again. Jesus is alive today. And Jesus is seated on the throne over the entire universe, ruling and reigning. He reigns from the throne of the universe. 
And today you and I live under that reign. But we live in an in-between period. Christ reigns spiritually and truly right now. But not yet does he reign in the final, ultimate way that he's going to reign. There's a day coming when King Jesus is going to come back to this earth. You guys know that, right? And this time, you know what he's not going to be doing? He ain't going to be on a donkey. He will charge back on a glorious war horse to finally forever conquer the globe. Revelation 19, 11 and following read, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it's called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the crowd in Jerusalem had the right king, but the wrong time. They recognized their king, but they failed to grasp his mission. Jesus first came to die and to redeem God's people. Jesus will come again to conquer and reign forever. The disciples didn't see it. But thanks to the scriptures and the Holy Spirit, we now can. Today, believe Jesus fulfills all of God's promises. Jesus is the center of everything God ever planned to do. Jesus is the way that God shows us his perfect justice and his sweet mercy. Where are you with this king? Are you under his lordship? Do you believe that he's everything God promised? Are you willingly ruled by this king? Or are you still fighting trying to be your own king? Point number three. I feel like there's a point I haven't made yet today that I usually make. Does anybody know what it is? Let's do believe in Jesus as a point here. We won't always do this, but it's so John, isn't it? It's what the book's about. Point number three, believe in Jesus. John 12, 17 to 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. As we pull back from this look at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, we're left with a picture of two groups. Isn't it always the case in the Bible we end up with two groups? There's a group that believes. There's a group that doesn't believe. There's a group that's in God's favor. There's a group that's not in God's favor. And I want you to know that today, 
You are in one of these two groups. In verses 17 and 18, we see that the people who had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, the people who believed, continue talking about Jesus. This, by the way, is one of the ways you can know that they really did believe. If you see somebody willing to point other people to Jesus, even when doing so might get them into trouble, you've got reason to believe they actually do believe. By the way, and I don't want to be, I don't want to put a big moralistic burden on your shoulders here, but you know what? When you're willing to gather together with the people of God, even when gathering together is inconvenient to you, don't you think that's a sign that you believe? As long as you don't think that gathering together is what's earning your way in, then yeah. Getting together when it would be way easier to stay home, that's a sign of faith. Sharing the gospel when not sharing the gospel would be easier as a sign of faith. Being willing to be, well, like Sunday school, being willing to be that crazy lady that talks to the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's awesome. Whether you did it that day or not, it's a sign of faith, isn't it? But there are others, aren't there? The religious leaders of verse 19, they are witness to what is happening. They see Jesus approaching Jerusalem and they hate what they see. They don't want to follow Jesus. They don't want Jesus to become more popular than them. They don't want their lives to change because of Jesus. And they just flat reject him as king. As we've seen before, the words of these complaining leaders are far more accurate than they realize. They, they say, oh, look, the whole world's coming after him. They think they're just complaining about how many people are following Jesus. But in point of fact, the world, people from nations all over the globe, they will come to Jesus. They will be under Jesus' kingship. They will find salvation in Jesus' name. So the call here as we wrap up is simple. You need to choose your side. Whom are you with? Are you with Jesus or the people who oppose Jesus? And there is no such thing as middle ground. Jesus really is the king. You can't look at the king and tell him, you know, I'm on the fence right now as to whether or not I wish to be under your authority. That's not how king works. You can be a friend of the king. You can be the king's enemy. Choose. But I urge you, choose Jesus. Believe in Jesus. God tells us that all who come to Jesus in faith have been given by God eternal life. If you believe in Jesus, you will worship him as king. Celebrate his goodness. You've got a great, glorious king to follow. So yield yourself to his lordship as a faithful subject under the rule of this king. It might be good for you to talk to family and friends about what would it look like if I made Jesus my king in everything. And remember this. Your king is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. All of God's promises. 
Jesus came to this earth to buy your forgiveness. Thank him. He will return to rule and reign forever. Worship him. Rejoice in him. Long for the day of his return. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice that you are king. And Lord, we confess that we have never obeyed you well enough to earn your favor. And even when we call you king, we stumble and we struggle. Our hearts rebel so easily. But Lord Jesus, as best as our hearts can, and by the aid of your Holy Spirit, We declare this. You are our king. Let us celebrate you. Let us surrender to you. Let us understand who you are. Let us declare it to the world. Let us follow you faithfully. And we are so grateful that this is all about your grace and not about what we do to earn it. Praise you, Jesus. Move in us. Friends, as you pray, as you continue to pray, start asking yourself, start asking the Lord, where do I need to surrender? Start asking the Lord, where where do I need to acknowledge the King? As you pray, think about friends and family who need to bow to the king instead of rebelling against him. Plead with the king. Save their souls. Lord God, I think of so many who have family members who are fighting you at every turn. Have mercy, Lord. As you pray, think about the hope you have in the king's return and his conquest of this world. Long for it. Pray to the Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord Jesus, be our king. We ask it in your holy name. Amen.